Hello. No, I'm not talking to you from the lofty mountains of Davos. I'm speaking to you from my freezing loft in Hertfordshire. However, I will still be talking to the great and the good. And this week it is Baroness Stowell of Beeston, formerly of the BBC, later the Conservative leader of the House of Lords, and now the chair of its Communications and Digital Select Committee. Tina Stowell talks to us about the departure of Radio 2's Ken Bruce, impartiality, and the BBC's future. She thinks it needs a creative vision. People need to know now why it should remain part of our future. But first, this week's BBC News. The corporation has announced changes to its plans for BBC Local Radio after a consultation. It has decided to increase the number of afternoon weekday programmes from 18 to 20, between 2pm and 6pm, and increase the number of weekend daytime shows from 12 to 18, between 10am and 2pm on Saturday and Sunday mornings. This means a little less sharing of output. There will also be a revision of the pairings of stations. Will this be enough to pacify local radio listeners and MPs? I doubt it. Fans of BBC Introducing certainly haven't been pacified. This weekly regional slot is a showcase for local music talent and has helped launch the careers of superstars such as Ed Sheeran, Florence and the Machine and George Ezra. In other words, just the sort of thing a publicly funded broadcaster should be doing. However, the future of BBC Introducing is uncertain. Despite the announced changes to local radio, it's still unclear whether the number of BBC introducing programmes will be maintained and whether they will be broadcast on local radio or move to BBC Sounds. A BBC spokesperson told The Guardian newspaper there will still be programmes and these will go out on Thursdays and Saturdays, but the exact locations, format and lineups haven't been confirmed yet. Well, that's clear then. Never mind, the BBC has signed a deal to keep Olympic coverage, up to and including the 2032 Games, free to air across the BBC. The corporation says it will offer live and on-demand coverage of both summer and winter editions of the Games on TV, radio, online and digital platforms. Well, now for this week's interview. I'm delighted to be joined by the Conservative peer Baroness Tina Stoll who is the chair of the House of Lords Communications and Digital Select Committee, a committee whose members include the former DG, Tony Hall. Miss Stoll has had an extraordinary career since she left school with five O-levels. Thirty years later, she became leader of the House of Lords under David Cameron, following a period as head of corporate affairs at the BBC. The committee she now chairs is vital to the future of broadcasting and has had a very busy year issuing reports on the future of Channel 4, BBC Future Funding, and last Tuesday, on a creative future. Baroness Stoll, welcome to the podcast. Now, before we get into details of the politics and the future of public service broadcasting, can I ask you briefly about your own career? Because it's, it's quite an astonishing one. I mean, you left school with few O-levels, you went to a comprehensive, you didn't go to university... Yet by your mid-40s, you're leader of the House of Lords and standing up, presumably surrounded by the most eminent brains in the country. (laughs) How did you do it? How did you have the confidence to do it? 
Um, I mean, when I left school at 16, I certainly wasn't setting out to become leader of the House of Lords. That was not my goal, really. How did I do it? I credit most of what I've been able to achieve by what I learned from my mum and dad, actually. I mean, you know, I was I was brought up to always try and be, um, strive for excellence, try and be the best that I could be at whatever it was that I was doing and to just do a really good job. And that was the attitude I brought to everything that I did. And as I progressed through my working life, I gained more confidence and, and I sort of, you know, continued to try and do better. But I wasn't really ever trying to get anywhere. But, I mean, you not only face the pressures that a woman has faced, uh, presumably or hopefully less now, but considerable and certainly in the Houses of Parliament, you face the prejudice of those who hadn't been to university, let alone public school. And did you face, initially, a lot of opposition when you were appointed leader in the Lords? Well, there was quite a lot of noise when I was appointed leader of the House of Lords, which was, at the time, because... I mean, it's quite complicated, but but David Cameron wasn't able to give me full cabinet rank. So I had a cabinet post with the rank of Minister of State. And that was translated in the media to being sort of a, a pay issue because I was being paid less than my sort of male predecessors. But for the House, there was a sort of sense of disappointment, I guess, a bit of a slight on their part, that David Cameron had felt it possible to do that to the leader of the House of Lords. And I think that it was a bit like, well, he's come up with this kind of arrangement and it would only be possible for that to happen if someone like me, I guess, was was given that post as opposed to a big grandee. So there was a lot of heat, but, you know, like all things, you know, you get through it. And, and I sort of said at the time, I mean, we had, you know, debates in the House, we had a vote. It was a big sort of brouhaha, but I, you know, I sort of said to the House, look, judge me on how I do the job and I will, you know, commit myself to it and do it in the same way that you've seen me do other jobs here in the past. I mean, I sort of built a reputation in the House because I had led the equal marriage legislation through the House of Lords and have been a whip for a couple of years, which is always a good way of the House getting to know you. So eventually, sort of, you know, like all things, you know, the noise subsided and people forgot about it and sort of, you know, know, the show moved on. And a year later, you were full member of Cabinet. Yeah, exactly. It's a technical legal thing about how many people can be in Cabinet with a particular rank at any one time. What people didn't ever really acknowledge was until that time, for four years it had been coalition during that time, the leader of the Commons had been in that situation, as in the leader of the Commons had had Cabinet position but at the rank of Minister of State and he just flipped it between the Commons and the Lords. But I don't want to push this too far, but in that cabinet, you're surrounded by people from Eton, rather a larger number than normal, actually, and Oxbridge. Did you ever feel like saying to them, listen, think about this, you are constantly undervaluing colleges of education, non-university academic roots. Did you ever you know, feel like telling them you've been intensely privileged, but you're overlooking this important sector of education? I mean, I was conscious often that even though there was a lot of people sat around the cabinet table who were from different kind of backgrounds and I think you see that a lot now in politics 
and in the media uh, and in business more generally, where there's a there's a diversity of background, but there's a very um, there's uniformity of educational attainment. And so even people who from working class backgrounds will have gone through university. And that's what creates that sort of rather homogenous sort of groupthink that, you know, has been so problematic in politics and the media over the last few years. And I think what we saw exposed most clearly during the whole Brexit thing. So I think that the sort of lack of understanding of that difference between university educated people and non-university educated people was something that I'd always felt very strongly about and it's always been something I, you know, had had concerned about. But I didn't really make a song and dance about it when I was in Cabinet. And to be honest with you, Roger, after I stopped being leader, because, you know, after the referendum and change Prime Minister, I was uh, moved on by Theresa May... I was one of the few people, along with George Osborne, I think, and sort of Michael Gove, who literally lost their job, you know, as a result of uh, the referendum result. Obviously, they were much more high profile than me. But it was a very massive thing for me because it was an incredibly profound time and a lot of soul searching for me because I'd gone through, you know, as you've already said, I mean, I'd become leader of the House of Lords, for God's sakes. I'd been a member of the cabinet. All this had, had happened and then suddenly came to an end. And I reflected a lot and and I felt very regretful, actually, that the reason why I had wanted to go into frontline politics, which was precisely to give voice to the kind of people I had grown up amongst and the sort of people who didn't go to university but were successful in their own terms, making a valued contribution to the economy and all that sort of thing. I felt that I had let them down when I'd actually had the power to be sort of much more influential on their part and it was a quite a big thing for me in that period after I'd left the cabinet. Well now I want to talk to you now mainly about the BBC's future role how to fund it and so on but picking up on what you've just said coming through your speeches is this concept of public service and the need for the BBC to serve everyone and particularly the communities as you were the further you go away from London and you've been quite critical about that in the sense that you're saying the BBC is failing to do that. Um, and do you think Brexit was a, the referendum was a demonstration of that? Yeah, I think Brexit was a, a symptom of where we as a country, but I think, you know, we've seen this now in sort of, you know, lots of parts of the Western world, you know, had failed to understand how those of us in positions of power and the media and, a, and an organisation like the BBC is a you know very good example of this, had lost touch and lost understanding of a significant chunk of our fellow citizens, really. And I think the result of that referendum was a symptom of people, you know, literally sort of trying to express their frustration, take back control, whatever whatever the slogan is that you want to attach to that moment. But I don't think Brexit was the cause of the divisions and the difficulties that we've seen in the years since. I think it was an exposure of what had gone wrong for so long up until that point. But what you seem to be suggesting to me is that uh, when you're critical of the BBC and you're saying that it needs a, a vision, a, a creative vision, really, to go alongside its business vision, part of that seems to me to suggest that they they are still a little bit out of touch with the rest of the country. You've been critical, for example, uh, of the cuts in local radio. Yeah. Um, do you still think the BBC, the BBC needs to get 
into touch with the rest of the country, rather better in a better way than it is now doing? You know, I don't want to be, you know, sort of completely critical of it because I think it does try, I think it recognises the need for it to serve everybody and I think it tries to do that. I don't think it's lacking in awareness of that as an issue, but I think it's still... You know, its default position too often is to try and educate parts of the country in on matters that, that it thinks that they don't understand properly. I mean, the best example I can give for you of this is on something like climate change. If you think back to sort of, you know, the, the COP26 event uh, a year or so ago and, you know, sort of widespread coverage of that... And, uh, you know, and as we know, there are a lot of people in the country who clearly sort of, you know, wouldn't want to do anything to harm the planet. You know, they want to be a good citizen. They want to play their part, all that sort of thing. But they're not religious about climate change. You know, it's not something that, you know, they feel has to be, should be and ought to be the number one top priority of everything. And I think sort of, you know, the BBC's way of kind of, you know, trying to reach out to these people was to perhaps do a segment on climate change in the one show. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, no, what would be much more interesting would be to go to people and get them talking about sort of, and helping the rest of uh, society who does think this is the you know, be all and end all of everything, understand why some people don't think that. And it's that sort of thing. That's a suggestion that BBC still has a tendency to talk down. Um, I think it can do that, yeah. I think yeah. it does do that. Uh, sort of mansplaining, oh. but a corporate explaining, perhaps you could call it. I think there, there are times when it does that, yeah. Um, but I think also, you know, this thing about sort of serving everybody, one of the things, you know, the BBC is very good at, and again, you know, I can understand corporately. I mean, I used to be head of corporate affairs, I get it. You know, I can understand why they will want to give you the best picture of how they are performing with their audience stats and all this sort of thing and they're leading this or the best at that and blah 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 and you know it's fine but I'd love it if they would be a bit more open about how they are performing amongst different sections of society and community because it's like when they'll talk about trust or you know there's great trust in the BBC or you think well I bet if you looked at different categories of people it will rank more highly for trust amongst some than it would others. And one of the reasons why I say this, because it's a slightly different topic, but it's sort of similar sort of thing. When I was chairing the Charity Commission, there was a problem with trust in the charitable sector. And the charity sector, particularly the sort of big corporate end of the charity sector, would say, oh, we're very trusted. We carry the sort of, you know, badge of charity, people trust us. Well, actually, once you started to dig into the way people perceived of charity as a concept of the charitable sector there was quite a difference, you know, in different segments of society. And it's only until you understand those differences that you can start to then address where you are weak and perform better. And I think in the BBC's term, when you are debating questions about how it should be funded and whatever, there are some people who a value-for-money type argument on the licence fee, for example, is not going to be particularly convincing for them because it's not that they can't afford to pay, it's that they don't feel that this institution really understands and is serving them in the way that they feel it should and they can now, in this day and age, get what they need from other places. Well, you've said the BBC needs to better reflect 
all sections of UK society. But you've also uh, pointed to what you think is this big gap, this vision, the need for a clear strategic purpose as opposed to a business purpose. Do you think the BBC is aware of the need for that? Uh, because it's, you know, uh, the boss, the DG, has appeared in front of you quite a number of times and outlined what he's doing in business terms. They've now strengthened the board quite significantly in terms of business expertise. But is there still this big hole about the future of the BBC as a public service broadcaster as opposed to as a big business? Yeah, I think there is. And, you know, I mean, I, I do want to say, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got a huge amount of respect and admiration for Tim Davey and uh, you know I'm a fan of his I, I wouldn't want to be uh, seen to be too hard on, on Tim he's got an incredibly difficult job to do but I think that the BBC has for a long time it relies on the fa- on its you know Rethian sort of trilogy you know sort of to inform educate and entertain and that is uh, everlasting and that is not something that I think is in question but we have to face up to the fact that there's lots of different organisations now who could claim to be doing that. And, and we need, if the BBC is going to continue to be you know, an important part of our future, and I think it should be, and certainly when you then get to the question of how it should be funded, we need to understand, well, what is it for? Why should we have a BBC if we've got all of these other things as well? And what is its strategic purpose? What is the purpose that is driving all of that which it does and the decisions that it makes? For a long time, what the BBC has successfully done is avoid defining that. It's a tactic, which is an understandable tactic, because defining it requires, you know, would lead to significant change in what it does and how it operates. And no director general has ever wanted to be the director general who has presided over a shrinking BBC, Okay, What I'm saying is that tactic, as understandable politically as it may have been over the last 30, 40 years, is no longer viable because people need to know now why it should remain part of our future. Now, it's, I don't think it is for politicians to come up with the answer to that question. I think that's dangerous. I think it should be the BBC who is able to sort of say, well, understanding the environment that we are operating in now, we recognise this as a decision for parliamentarians, but actually this is where we think we can continue to add value in the next 10, 20 years and what we want to see as our driving strategic purpose, which should inform not just what we do, but also then inform how we are funded. And that's what we want to hear debated. Um, But it won't do that. uh, And it's reluctant to do that. And as I said, I can see why it's reluctant to do that. But I think that it's danger in it not doing so. And You've also said that the BBC should shape the market about public service broadcasting, not just react to market failure. So we could analyse, we'd have a view about what was market failure, and and I would put up ideas of religious and science programming and local journalism and so on that. But that wouldn't be sufficient, would it? Because you make the argument that the BBC, I think, still has to be a big international player as well. So... It's got to attend to, as it were, market failure. It's got to try and shape the market. And is it possible to do this 
without some form of government support, either through the licence fee or through some other form. Will there need to be in future some state support for the BBC in financial terms? Well, I think if we remain convinced that there is a role for an institution such as the BBC to make an intervention into the market for, you know, we're convinced the value of that to society and the, and the public is such that we want it to continue, then I think it will need to retain some form of public funding. And we say that in our report. The level of that, I think, then sort of comes back to, well, you know, what is it that we think it should be doing in order to, you know, how much money does it need in order to fulfil that function or to fulfil that purpose? But I don't think it can do it just by commercial funding alone, no. Because, I mean, otherwise it's just let it go and, you know, sort of be its own thing, do what it likes, you know, if it's a commercial player. And subscription, which isn't possible technically at the moment but will become, would inevitably, I presume, result in the BBC satisfying or trying to satisfy subscribers, increasing the numbers of subscribers, and that might be incompatible with a public service role. What we said in our report was moving to a wholly sub, uh, subscription service was incompatible for the reasons that you've just said. I think it would be a very different beast. You know, because of that, as in because it would lead to it having to satisfy its subscribers, it wouldn't raise enough money to do the stuff that we think wouldn't necessarily attract the subscription that, um, you know, might be the sort of, you know, the less commercially attractive and the more sort of public service type stuff. What we don't rule out, however is a hybrid type solution where you might continue to get some form of public funding, whether it's a license through the licence fee or a different form of uh, funding, topped up by subscription. Now, it could be that as technology sort of continues to develop, those top up things could be all sorts of things. They could be, you know, the windowing type thing, where you get something first on you know, subscription before it goes, moves on to uh, free for all. Or you could have, you know, as immersive comes in and more virtual. I mean, we just don't know what might be available down the line that will be supplementary to standard viewing that audiences are going to want because it will be available in uh, other places that the BBC would want to be able to offer, but it shouldn't necessarily something that everybody is paying for because not everybody wants it and not everybody would take it even if they had to pay for it that sort of thing so I think there are ways of doing a sort of hybrid and then there's a you know I mean there are other options which would go as far as having an international subscription service there are some people who would argue I know this is something Andrew Neal's argued where you know you would have a more distinct cut off between sort of public service and top up. I'm not sure how that might work. I'm, I'm less, I think that's an easier said than done type model, that one, if you know what I mean. But what you're saying very clearly is vision first. For sure. Then yeah. the finances or the way you finance yeah. that follows, follows yeah. the vision. And you do think that some form of state intervention, whatever we call it, is necessary. But there are a number of members of your party who are still deeply suspicious of the BBC in terms of impartiality. The Director-General has said, and the Chairman has said, there has been a problem, in the sense that always will be a problem, won't they, wherever you are. They say they're taking steps to, to try and deal with that. Do you feel, and do you think members of your party still feel, the BBC isn't sufficiently impartial? Yeah, there are definitely people who feel that. And, you know, and I think there are examples of it. But won't there always be examples of it? Because the output is so great, because there's so much of it, 
You can make any case you like if you are content to just choose individual examples. But that's vastly different from talking about, as it were, a corporation-wide bias in any particular direction. Yeah, but I think to back to where we were starting you know, this conversation, I mean, when I first went to work at the BBC in 2001, and I went there from uh, running William Hague's office, who was leader of the Conservative Party at the time, and I hadn't intended to go and work for the BBC. I saw a job advertised in The Guardian, and I applied for it, and I got it. And I was out of work, so I was just, you know, I was just trying to get a job. When I got there, I, was, I thought, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to stand this place. But one of the things which I was impressed about was how seriously it took impartiality. And I was, I was surprised, I was pleasantly surprised by just how important this is to the BBC. So I, you know, and I will say that to people and I've, I, you know, and I'm happy to say it here publicly on your podcast, Roger. I think the difference is that where it is less good in impartiality terms is not so much the party political dividing lines, but actually in those things which are less clearly party pre and more about sort of, you know, differences of perspective, outlook and understanding of different kind of people. You know, you have to understand in the Conservative Party itself now, our coalition of members, both, you know, in terms of party members, uh, well, actually, no, they're probably still sort of quite quite the same as they've ever been. But when you look at the Parliamentary Party, it's a very broad coalition of very different kind of people. And there are some in the party who feel, when they talk about impartiality, the BBC might be sort of very much about a Conservative Labour divide, but there are others who, I think, when they raise their concerns, are raising them very much from that sort of position of their own constituents feeling sort of that they're not properly understood or represented on the BBC in a way that, that you know, they feel they ought to be because they're paying for it. So do you feel, as a result of this, and I suspect this applies to Channel 4 as well, do you feel an essential element of combating this problem, if it exists of impartiality, is moving production and decision-making out of London to a much greater degree than it now is? I think there's an element of that that helps, and for sure. And I think, you know, if that involves the decision-makers being people who are not just the same people moving out of London, as it were, but actually sort of, you know, a, a much broader, diverse workforce and diverse in the, you know, in the broadest sense. It's a bit like when people say about moving Parliament out of London, and it's a way of, you know, as, as becoming much more understanding of, or, you know, particularly moving the House of Lords out of London and make us more understanding of the population. That in itself is not going to solve the problem if we as a second chamber still don't listen enough to what it is that people want through the legislation that we are considering. So, you know, you can't just move out of London if you're still not going to pay attention, you know, to the people who are um, feeling sort of let down at the moment. So I think that in itself is not going to be enough. 
No, but I mean, it's always struck me that, you know, MPs go back frequently to their constituencies at weekend and they're only in London for three nights. So they may be taking their decisions in London or four nights, but they're often spending as much time out in the, in the country. Yeah. That, of course, does not apply to BBC executives. But anyway, let's uh, just go towards the conclusion of our conversation. Of course, there is a media bill. You're all waiting upon a media bill, the government to introduce one. I think you're getting slightly impatient in the Lords about that. But are you impatient because you share the view of Peter Bazalgette, who says that um, there's an ex- ex- public service broadcasting is facing an existential crisis on questions in, in, in the future where they lose control, if you like, of how people access their programmes? Do you think there is a, a crisis here? I don't know about crisis. I think there's a definite serious problem about accessibility for audiences to public service broadcasters via smart TVs and, you know, all of these different kind of sets and what have you. And that needs addressing. My slight worry with the media, but I mean, I, I'm pressing for it all the time. And I, you know, I share Peter Bazalgette's view that it's urgent and there's a danger if this isn't addressed, for sure. I don't disagree with that one jot. My worry is the longer this goes on, it will be an answer to yesterday's problem and we'll have a a new problem that we haven't yet addressed. And so the urgency for me is around the fact that if we're not careful, I mean, I think, you know, Peter Bazalgette talked about, you know, question marks for ITV as to whether or not there's still value of it remaining uh, a PSB if it can't be guaranteed prominence on these various different platforms. And And I, you know, I can see that. And the risk is, is that we end up with the public service broadcasters facing questions like that before we've even addressed, you know, this current problem. But yeah, I mean, it's clearly something which is desperately needed and we need to get on with. And there's a need for it. It's not just the broadcasters as well. I mean, there's a, there's different aspects of the media sector that, uh, you know, are keen that we bring that forward. It's very frustrating. It is intensely frustrating. And in fact, I heard the other day that and this may not come in this session it may come in the next session uh, the next session may be delayed uh, starting because we've got to finish the online safety bill in this session so that it doesn't fall completely and uh, and that may mean that they have to do some pre-legislative scrutiny of the media bill just to sort of keep the ball in play as it were well all of this it just just adds to the come on, you know, get on with it um, type sort of feeling. But by the same token, I also understand, particularly as a former business manager in Parliament, that there's only so many hours in the day and got so many different priorities that the government have got to deliver on and it's very hard to choose which is more important than others. And finally, can I ask you about uh, Ken Bruce's departure for Radio 2? Now, he's 71 somewhat younger than I am, actually, and uh, he's moving to another broadcaster. Does this matter, or do you, do you look at that and say uh, it's significant, his fans will be worried, but there's no wider significance in terms of broadcasting? I think it's interesting how many big figures have left BBC Radio, yourself included, of course. Uh, of middling uh, height, I would say, <laughs> of middling height, yeah. But I think on Radio 2, I think, you know, the departure of Ken Bruce, the departure of Steve Wright is quite significant and and I suppose what it leaves me thinking is what is Radio 2 turning into? Is Radio 2 now trying to be something different? I mean, it, the debate about 
the role of the BBC in radio is one which, as I think, has is evolved over the last 10 or 20 years, because I remember perhaps about 15 years ago now, one of the big issues was whether BBC Two was far too dominant versus the commercial radio. There was a big debate about uh, presenters' pay and, you know, all of this sort of thing. And there was, you know, the commercial radio were very concerned about um, Radio 2. Whereas that seems to have ebbed away in terms of the threat of Radio 2 to the commercial broadcasters who are obviously doing very well. But I think, for me, I look at BBC Radio and I just want to know more about, well, what is it all adding up to? Because... On the one hand, you hear about these big presenters leaving from stations such as that. And then on Radio 1, there's this continual addition to the Radio 1 brand on BBC Sounds, like BBC 1 Dance, BBC 1 something or other, or Radio 1 this, Radio 1 the other. I just don't understand anymore. You do understand that's about, or in the BBC's view, that's about organisational survival. They are terrified about what's happening with younger listeners and viewers, the, the fact that they are not coming to the BBC and may never in the future, and therefore they're, they're channelling money and via podcasts and other ways desperately to try to get younger listeners and viewers. And that's why they're doing it. Now, whether they're successful or not, frankly, I, I can't sort out the figures, but, you know, that's why they're doing it. So being able to provide something which is valuable to younger people, clearly it needs to be able to do that. And I think that, for me, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in how to retain audiences or anything else, but, I mean, to me, and it comes back again to, you know, purpose before we then get on to sort of, you know, how you then go about fulfilling that. One of the critical things that the BBC can do and must do is be a vehicle for new music and for new artists, And that, to me, is where its real emphasis needs to be. Now, if that is represented through Radio 1 or some sort of more modern version of delivery, you know, whether it's uh, through podcasts, and that is appealing to young people or a certain demographic for whom new music is always what they really, really want, well, that's how they should be attracting new audiences. If they're meant to have a station which is a kind of uh, homespun type station which um, you know is everybody's best friend you put it on and you know you know you're always going to have good company throughout the day and that's radio two well I think that's fine as long as we know that's what radio two is all for and if in the course of normal business presenters come and go well that's how it should be you know just because you're a presenter and you're really good doesn't mean that you should expect to stay in one place forever or the audiences want you to stay in one place forever but if they're leaving because the purpose of that station is becoming sort of unclear and it's changing well let's understand what the station's meant to be about because then we can understand what Ken Bruce and Steve Wright are doing It's the fact that we don't really know. And I do believe very strongly that part of the BBC's job should be nurturing new presenting talent all of the time. So I've never been concerned about presenters, TV or radio, that leave to go and earn more money somewhere else. And I think the BBC, you know, in the past certainly has, in my view, has been wrong when they've tried to hang on to talent by giving them more money because it's like, well, no, you know, it's your job to use our money to keep bringing new people on all the time. But there's something going on at the moment in radio, which I just don't understand. And I want to say I, I don't think I'm alone here. I think we need to have a bit more clarity, the plan there. So it's a vision thing. 
It really is. Yeah, it really is. And one last question, if I may. Uh, this is close to my heart. What drove me mad, actually, when I was presenting feedback with a number of times that BBC managers wouldn't turn up, wouldn't be accountable. Uh, the BBC, it seems to me, needs to be open with its audience about what it's trying to do and consult them. It can't take a vote on everything. That would never work. No. But do you share the view that the BBC needs to be more open and accountable to those who pay for it? For sure, yeah. No, absolutely. You know, don't get me wrong. I don't think uh, audiences or, you know, licence fee payers, they don't want a sort of um, a seminar, you know, and, you know, they want good stuff. You know, they will judge the BBC on whether or not what is coming out of it is uh, meeting their expectations. So nobody's going to be tuning in for a briefing on, you know, <laughs> on Radio 1's new strategy or whatever. But I think, I think it should see it has a responsibility and a duty to be very open and clear in simple terms about, as I say, why it's there and how the decisions that it is making are being driven by a simple vision and purpose that everybody can be bought into. Because I think, for me, the BBC, if it's got any purpose in very, very simple, basic terms, is that it should be a unifying force. It should be something that we look to and it sees itself and understands itself as part of, you know, social glue, whatever, you know, however you want to uh, describe it. And so its, its purpose is something that we should all be happy with. And therefore, when we judge its performance, if we know that we're happy with the reason why it's there that we can sort of, you know, we can question how it's doing against that. And I think a bit more of that from the BBC would be a good thing. You touched on local radio earlier on. I mean, there's an awful lot of concern, certainly in Parliament, about the decisions that, uh, about local radio. And I recognise, of course, that, you know, they're having to manage a reduction in their budget. And I think Tim Davey is actually doing sort of incredibly well in managing the finances and still sort of, you know, delivering quality output. But the, the reason why people get upset about what's happening in local radio is because it's like, well, what's driving that decision? If it's about your finances and you're having to make choices, well, let's understand a bit more about what's driving this. Why are you prioritising X over Y? And what is it that's led you to that? Because it's that's what's not particularly clear at the moment. Amen to that. Um... Tina Stoll, Baroness Stoll of Beeston, thank you very much for talking to me. Thanks, Roger. It's been great to talk to you. And that's it for this week, but I'm afraid I have to make another weekly plea for you to support our journalism. It's only £1.99 per month, just rather less than a cup of coffee. You can do this easily using the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. You can get in touch with interview ideas and questions on Twitter by using at BeebRoger or on Mastodon using at RogerBolton at MastodonApp.uk or you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonsbeebwatch.com This podcast was indeed presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios and special thanks go to Quingenti. It was a good egg production. Until next week, goodbye.